0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We opened our new series on the book of Philippians last week by reading through the entire letter out loud. That's how it would have first been experienced by the church in Philippi. People couldn't read in those days and they didn't have the ability to mass-produce documents like we do today. And so these letters were precious articles that could only be experienced by most people read aloud in assembly. And so, in fact, we see instructions in several of Paul's letters where that's explicitly um, uh, commanded by the Apostle Paul that his letters would be read aloud to the churches to whom he sent and even beyond there to other churches um, in a sort of exchange of letters situation. We talked also about how Philippians, with its distinctly warm and friendly tone, is basically a glorified thank you letter from Paul to this church. It's addressed to a church that Paul had founded himself in Macedonia, which is northern Greece in the years 50 to 52 AD, and with whom he was particularly close, and it comes in response to a kindness that they have shown him uh, recently. Paul was Uh, when he wrote this letter, he was under house arrest as a prisoner of the Roman state, awaiting trial before Caesar um, for charges levied against him by his own countrymen, the Jews, false charges. The believers in Philippi, they heard of Paul's plight and somehow they heard, even from a great distance, and they uh, organized a special gift To be sent to him, hand-delivered to him, and this gift was in two parts. First of all, it was a gift of money. We don't know how much, but it must have been um, worth all the trouble of getting it there, so probably a large amount to help Paul meet his material needs. But it was also uh, the second part of the gift is came in the person of Epaphroditus. It was a gift to meet Paul's uh, relational and missional needs. They sent. Epaphroditus, a leading man of their church, possibly one of their pastors, to go and be with Paul in Rome and offer any assistance he could to him. And he did for a time. So this letter of Paul's is really a big thank you to this church for this great extravagant gift of love. It's 800 miles away along a famous Roman road from Philippi to Rome. And so this is a, this is a pretty lavish gift that they have poured out on Paul. And he's abounding in thanks for them. Um, It's a letter that, as it's saying thank you, it says a whole lot more than that. It says a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the gospel, about union with the Lord, about how we should uh, emulate the Lord's own example, and how this builds up the church together. It's just a wonderful letter. In the interest of full disclosure, I myself have not, given Philippians much attention in my life. And as a young man, that's because Philippians just didn't have enough edginess. It wasn't punchy. It wasn't attacking anybody. And so it just seemed like something I could kind of put to the side and not value like other parts of scripture. I'm really coming around, not because I'm finding it punchier than I expected. Uh, It is just a warm, affectionate letter. But here's what I'm finding. I need that. I need that. And I'm more and more convinced that the Lord has led us to this portion of his word, where we find Paul, the great gospel visionary, bearing his Christ-inflamed soul to these dear people who he loves, who, from whom he has just tasted of, their, of an unexpected uh, kindness and, uh, and gift of love which was stirred up in them as upon the hearing of his difficulties. He, he, and he, he wasn't looking for it, and out of the blue it comes, and he is just overflowing with thanks in the way that this great theologian overflows with thanks, with great theology. And so we have this wonderful, rich letter to marinate in together over the course of this summer and fall, maybe even a little bit into the new year. We'll see how it goes. Well, today we're just focusing on the very opening greeting and address of this letter, the first two verses, the, the main theological foundations and themes of this whole letter really are opened up and found in this these first two verses, just the, just the saying, "Hello, here I am <laughs> and and they are resident in a couple of identifying terms or terms of gospel identity that Paul employs here in as he greets this church. It's uh, these, these terms of identity are really foundation stones of our faith and they help us understand who and what we are and what we are to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're gonna look at them together. Let's read this um, opening together. Uh, the first two verses of Philippians 1. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Paul and Timothy... Bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So we hardly write letters anymore, but when we do, we save our signature for the end of the letter. In these times, conventions were different. And the norm was to start with your own name as the sender of a letter or author of a letter. And that's what Paul does here. He's just following standard, ancient letter writing procedure and how he opens this. He said it, the, the, the form is basically from the sender to the recipient, greetings and prayers. And that's what we see Paul doing here. Although it's not pro forma with Paul, he's packing all of the good riches of the gospel into even this just opening formality. He begins by identifying himself as the author of this letter, and he names his protege Timothy as a signatory with him. This could indicate that this young Timothy, uh, protege of Paul's, helped author the letter. That's possible, But more than likely, it just means that Timothy was there with him as he's writing it, probably serving as his secretary. And Paul is dictating this letter to him. And and Timothy is is writing it down and agreeing with every word, affirming it in his heart um, with Paul. Paul, we know from the letter, is intending to send Timothy to Philippi as soon as he can to serve as an overseer and pastor in that church. And so it it's, makes a lot of sense that Paul would, uh, in order to grow the Philippians' esteem for Timothy and to show that he has Paul's uh, trust like no other, that he would name him here at the beginning of the letter as a co-sender, if not a co-author. To whom is Paul with Timothy writing the letter? Well, Paul makes it clear that his intended audience is the whole Philippian church. He says in verse 1 To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. The overseers and deacons. There's, uh, you could talk at length about what those words exactly mean and what we're referring to and how church, government, and polity works. But really, all you have to understand is that Paul's talking about church officers. To all the saints, including the church officers, greetings. Um, we're going to come back to this term saints because that's one of those gospel identity words that's very potent and that's helpful to us a little later on. But here, it's really just interesting to note that Paul this is the only letter that Paul writes in which he explicitly calls out and points attention to and gives greetings to the church officers in his introduction. All the other letters, certainly the officers are in view because he's writing to whole churches and he's not saying in spite of, or, officers hold your ears as I write. But here he draws, calls them out explicitly and we could wonder, well, why? Why does he do that here? We don't really know for sure. But my best guess is that this is his way of acknowledging their special role in organizing the gifts that were sent to him. Our officers function in this way for us regularly. A few weeks ago, I brought to the church's attention a a need in a family, a dear family that we love and support, the Molina family and all that they're going through um, in South Carolina and Argentina with Claudio's mom. I said that in the first service, I said it again in the second service, but between the services, the deacons of the church that were present got together in a special meeting and they, just, they voted to send a gift from our Benevolence Fund, our Compassion Fund, to the Molinas to help them in any way that would be helpful in this time. The church officers took the initiative. I'm telling you that it happened in your name and to your credit, and this is how things often go. And I think Paul is probably just saying, I know that this is how this went. And I just want you men especially to hear my thanks in this letter. Matthew Henry makes a really interesting observation about Paul's drawing attention to the officers here at the beginning of the letter that I think is helpful to us. It's a good reminder. After he observes that Paul makes mention of the officers of the church, who Henry refers to in his writing just as the ministers of the church, uh, Matthew Henry goes on to say, Paul mentions the church before the ministers to all the saints and the officers. He mentions the church before the ministers because the ministers are for the church, for their edification and benefit, not the churches for the ministers, for their dignity, dominion, and wealth. That is a good reminder of the nature of the church, of the role and function of the Christian ministry. It is not lording it over the church. It is not profiting from the church. It exists. The ministry and the offices exist to build up and serve the church. I'm saying this because we all tend to like uh, be jealous of one another and, and, and envy those above us. People at the top, tend to abuse their authority and their power and forget that they are simply servants. And this is a great reminder for Matthew Henry. And it's consistent with the humble view that Paul and Timothy take of themselves as they they introduce this letter to the church. They call themselves bond servants of Christ. And that's the first or the second of the very um, potent gospel identifiers that Paul employs here in this verse. We're going to get into those now, saints and bondservants, saints and slaves. But I want to say something just about identity in general before we get into it. Identity. Identity is a major concern of our society today. If you're listening, you're hearing about it all the time. We are regularly confronted with questions like, How do you identify? How do you identify? What are your pronouns? It's another way of asking the same question. How do you identify? We hear statements like this, even more pervasive than those earlier questions. Statements like this. You can be whatever you want to be. You can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. Stores and clothing lines and cars and electronic, electronics manufacturers are developing products around the many different images and identities that people want to project of themselves. Hipster jokes are passe already, but I want to share with you my favorite hipster joke. Because it's really a joke about identity and, and projection. It's the definition of a his, hipster that's the, the premise of the joke. A hipster is someone who inherited his grandfather's work clothes, but not his grandfather's work ethic. <laughs> you can project grandfather work ethic with clothes. You can take on an identity. People are experimenting by with taking on and and trying out different identities or projections of identity that uh, even may and maybe especially ones that are not authentically or even biologically their own. They do not belong to them by right by biology, but they're putting them on and trying them out, seeking desperately to find fulfillment, satisfaction, joy. Peace in their life. All of us can easily fall prey to this temptation to try out an identity, to seek some relief in our life, some promise, some hope, some joy. All of us can fall prey to this. And it is really, we're really susceptible to it, especially at times of difficulty or unease or transition in our lives. So the classic place we all have experienced this and we see it is teenagers. Teenagers are casting about trying to find who they are. What is their identity? What is it going to be? Today it might be I want to be an astronaut. Tomorrow it might be I wear fedoras. It's just like it's day by day there's something new for many teenagers because they are trying to find out who they are and discover it. That's work that they have to, do, to go through. It can be comical for parents. It can be uh, for parents. <laughs> Worrisome. But that's a time of transition and, and change in, in a life in which identity is sought for. But it's not just teenagers that they go through this and experience it. There's another classic time of, of transition and change in, in, in most people's lives which is middle age. We we're talking as uh, Josh Congrove was leading us through an el- uh, elders meeting devotional talking about this experience of middle age where that person that you have found through the, wor- the years of being a teenager, that person you found, that identity you found, now is suddenly starting to slip away through your fingers. You feel it going. It's only just starting, it's subtle, but you feel it. And it creates this unease, this insecurity. Where, what am I? Where am I going? And we can cast about in middle age for a new identity that gives us security, peace, joy. Gives us what we're looking for, comfort. I don't know if old age has an equivalent to this or not. You have to tell me. I haven't been there yet. I'm on my way. But whatever our age, whatever season of life we're in, it is absolutely vital that we find and come to know our identity in Jesus Christ and that we get it settled in our heart and mind and we let him instruct us in what we are, who we are, who he wants us to be, and we find our security and our joy and our satisfaction in knowing him and being his. That is absolutely vital. We can't be casting about looking for meaning and fulfillment outside of his good and perfect will. This is certainly true of where identity is most often, most publicly grasped for today when it comes to our sexuality, our assigned sex. Our identity as a man or a woman, we are to submit to that identity, which was assigned by God biologically to us at the time of our birth. We're to accept it as printed by God, as a choice of God's, as an assignment from God in this world, and we are to live it out in faithfulness before God to to the best of our ability and in faith. But in order to begin, to even begin, to be God's man or woman. We have to first be God's child. We have to belong to him. We have to come to know that we are unified to him. We have to be counted among his people, enlisted into his service, given the gift and the grace of the Holy Spirit of promise residing in us and indwelling in us. We can have absolutely no hope of knowing God's will, being in God's will, following or fulfilling God's will for our lives without being first known by God and belonging to him. We are one thing by nature when we are born. We have an identity in our father Adam, and that is an identity of fallenness, of sinfulness, of corruption, of alienation and hostility, alienation from God, hostility with God. We are outside of God and the life that is in God. That is our identity by nature, no matter what we put on to try to find a new one. What we need is a new identity, something new produced in us by grace we must obtain a new status or new standing before god we must come to stand in a new relationship to him in short we must become saints that's the word paul uses here and a potent identity gospel word and that is one of the foundation stones of the gospel that the gospel makes a saint that's what it does. So let's, let's talk about these terms, gospel, or, or rather, saint, and also the other term that Paul uses, which is bond servants or slaves. Both of those are things that have a, come with a lot of gospel truth that we need to hear. How many saints are in this room? Oh, thank you. Some. It would be really interesting as an experiment, probably horrifying, but interesting, to go around with a microphone and just ask us one by one, are you or are you not a saint? Yes or no? It would be an interesting experiment. We would get a mixture, I think, of yeses and nos. It's hard to say what proportion. It's also hard to predict whether that would be in any way accurate of truth, of reality. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this word saint, this concept of sainthood, what it means, but it's very important that we understand it biblically. Often, when we hear the word saint, the first thing that comes to mind is a person who's especially holy, a cut above, hard to relate to because they're so impossibly godly. That's what we think, maybe just generally as a saint. That, that person's a saint in another league for me. Or we might think of a saint as someone who has been uh, officially recognized or what they call canonized by the Roman Catholic Church for what they say, what they call heroic virtue, heroic virtue, and, and this has been evidenced, documented, um, with throughout their life history um, as, as people have examined their life and it's also been evidenced by the, the performance of at least one miracle in the course of their life. That's who Rome is prepared to say is a saint. They also have to be dead. They're prepared to say there's about 10,000 people in history now all of them in heaven because there's no, nobody on earth that they're prepared to say with certainty is a saint. There's about 10,000 people as they've gone through history that they're prepared to say are saints and give it their stamp of approval. They have to be in heaven. This is key to their understanding of sainthood because they pray to saints. They don't directly ask for favors from them. What the, the one favor they ask is that they would put in a good word for them with Jesus. There they are right by him. And people pray for one another on earth to good effect especially it would be helpful to pray to somebody who's got the big guy's ear. And so this is why it's so important to the Roman Catholics that they make sure and speak with certainty and authority as they see it um, uh, concerning who is or who isn't a saint because people pray to them and expect good things for them. They have to be certain that they're there in heaven where they can get the job done. This is all completely opposed to the Bible's teaching and definition of a saint, completely in opposition. And it really opens up and exposes the Roman Catholic system as contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth about sainthood comes, starts early in in the scriptures. It derives from a passage which we read, it's one of our scripture readings, the Old Testament from the books of the law of Moses, Exodus 19, verse 6. God says to Israel in Exodus 19, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I noticed in the reading that before that, a couple verses, God said, you saw how I brought you out of Egypt to myself. I brought you out to myself and now you're going to be to me a holy nation, a royal priesthood. He doesn't say, I want you to start working your way towards becoming that, in relation to me. I don't want you. To, I want you to clean yourselves up so that I can then be, you know, acceptably say to you that you have now achieved the status of holy nation and royal priesthood before me. He simp- What he really says. The heart of his message is: I set you apart to be that, not because you are great and awesome, and mighty as a nation, and got it all together, actually because you're the tiniest, and I pity you the most. (laughs) And I can show my greatness the most through you. I can exalt myself, and my power, and my love, and and compassion through you. That's their dignity. But God says to them, you will be to me. That is, I, I set you apart to be that in relationship to me as an act of my electing choice and electing love. That's the origin of this concept of sainthood. It's resident in this word, this Hebrew word that is in that passage, which is kadosh, which means holy. Which all holy means is set apart for a sacred use. Separated out, called out that's where this New Testament term saint, which is hagios in Greek, comes from. A saint is a person set apart by God in this life, called out of darkness into his glorious light, adopted as God's child by an act of his free grace, declared to be holy by virtue of the substitutionary sacrifice and atonement of Jesus Christ, which is applied to their account along with Christ's own record of righteousness. That's what makes a saint. If you believe in Jesus Christ, I don't care if that started or happened for the first time 40 years ago, or just yesterday. You, according to the scriptures, are a saint set apart, called out for God's holy purposes. You are a holy one of God by virtue of the faith that is in you, which itself is a gift of God. But it makes you a saint. No matter how new your faith or small your knowledge or weak your obedience or low your position or meager your achievements for the God. You, if you believe in him, if you are united to him by faith, you are According to God and his word, a saint. And, f- and from you are holy because he is holy and you are in him. That's why Paul here, and he says to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, you are saints in Christ Jesus. There is no other saint in the world but those that are made saints, called out, separated for God's use through the gospel and from that position of holiness and acceptance before God that status that identity which he gives to you through the gospel through faith you are free in Christ and empowered by God's spirit to live a life of joyful obedience before God to grow up into the fullness and maturity of your sainthood to to joyfully grow up into all that God has called you to be, to find it out, to discover it, to grow more and more into that likeness, which he has labeled you in in, in the gospel and in salvation. And you get to do this knowing that that label is not going to be yanked away from you. That it's not dependent on your performance It's dependent on God's love and it is protected and secured by his covenant faithfulness. Believer, are you willing to claim for yourself the title of saint? It's not a proud thing to do. It's a faithful, believing, trusting in God and glorifying God thing to do. Because it is not a claim to being holy in yourself or of personal achievement. It's a claim to being in yourself a wicked, condemned sinner upon whom God showed mercy and called out of the darkness and set apart for his own use and purposes, good purposes in salvation and showing his his mercy. It's a claim to being in yourself a sinner but holy and righteous by faith because of the workings of Jesus. It's It's to lay claim to the promises of the gospel and to bask in the wonders of God's grace. That's the first question. Are you willing to consider yourself a saint? The second question is this, are, do you view your fellow believers as saints? It may not be a stretch to accept that Paul would call his beloved Philippians saints. I mean, after all, they're lovey-dovey. They just sent him a bunch of money. He's feeling happy thoughts about them. But what about the other churches that give him trouble? How does he refer to them? as saints and some, and more profusely even when it comes to the Corinthians than he does here with the Philippians. Let me just read. So the Philippians, the Corinthians are very disorderly, very troublesome, very corrupt church. Okay. Not the kind of church that gives Paul happy thoughts. Okay. Here's what he says in his introduction to them, to the church of God, Which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul calls them saints, and he reminds them of their high calling in Jesus Christ, even in how he says, Hello. Do you accept the weaker brother or sister here? as a saint and cherish them with all that reverence and honor, which is due, such as of, due to one of God's holy ones? Or do you, are you preferential, biased, impatient, severe, looking down your nose on people, using your standard of godliness today or your gifts that God has given you as the standard, the baseline of sainthood, below which nobody could possibly consider themselves one. We are to extend to one another in Christ what's called a judgment of charity. And that's what Paul does when he's writing to churches. He takes them at their word. When they claim Jesus Christ and are part maintaining fellowship and are part of the body of Christ, Certainly he does his work pastorally with them and he challenges sin where he sees it, calls it what it is. He's not shy to do that. But his he premises on this, that they are God's holy ones, and therefore have an obligation to live out of that holy status and identity faithfully before God. Husbands, do you love your wives as saints? Apparently, this is a temptation of ours not to do so. And it's very important to God and his word that we respect and dignify as co-heirs of the grace of life, our wives, men. Listen to it in 1 Peter 3. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. It's important to God that we dignify and respect and honor the status as of, of co-inheritors of grace, of sainthood, of our wives along with us husbands. Paul wrote to all the saints who are in Philippi and he didn't add disclaimers or qualifiers. If you made a claim to Jesus Christ and were walking in fellowship with the church, Paul was prepared to love you, to take you at your word, to accept you. Do we do the same with one another? Do we do as a church towards other churches, what Paul does in his letters, accept the status and the high calling, and, and dignify the the true nature of of sainthood in other organizations, churches in our community, and outside ourselves. Paul doesn't apply the term saint to himself in this opening, but he certainly considered himself to be one. Now, what kind of saint, or what status of saint, or what rank of saint do you think Paul considered himself? The Masonic right, the Masons, they have their 33rd degree, and then a whole bunch of lesser positions all the way down to newbie, or whatever it's called. And I suppose most organizations have their hierarchy or their system, their ladder that you can climb as you advance through the organization. And apparently the church has a ranking system of its own. At least the Apostle Paul thought so. And when he wasn't shy about identifying and advertising which rung he felt that he had achieved. Here's what he wrote to the Ephesians about this. In chapter 3 he said, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. To me, to me, the very least of all the saints. Now, is Paul just being falsely humble? I don't think so. I think he's a man who knows himself, who knows his sin, who knows the mercy of God, which has been extended to him and who recognizes that for him, him of all people, to have received such the honor of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is unfathomable. And it, and it is in spite of so much sin. This is just his way of saying and acknowledging his humility, his acknowledgement of God's Goodness. And wondering at it, that he is the least of all the saints. When comparing himself against other sinners, Paul calls himself what? The chief. <laughs> so in the, in the ladder of who's the, who's the better sinner or worse sinner, Paul puts himself at the top. When comparing himself to other saints, Paul puts himself at the bottom. He calls himself least. When identifying himself with Timothy in this letter, his go-to handle and identity is what? Bondservant, which really is slave. That's really the word. The Greek word here that's translated bondservant means slave. It's doulos, which was the common term for slave in the Greek-speaking world. Modern translators can't bring themselves to say slaves here because of the sensitivities that surround that concept in our culture. Particularly, they don't want readers to import wrong ideas uh, from the brutal and dehumanizing history of American slavery, of chattel slavery in this country, into, or import, they don't want them to import that into their understanding of their relationship with God. And you know what? That's pretty reasonable. That would be bad. Certain aspects of what we understand as slavery would be wrong to import. So they they grasp for some alternative. And and the best they come up with is either servant or they try to beef that up with bond servant. But servant doesn't quite get at it. The real nature of what Paul's saying, his relationship and status uh, under Jesus is as an apostle. His, what he... The word he uses is slave. Servant functions A servant functions voluntarily in a subordinate position to others, and only during work hours, and only insofar as he wants to keep his job. He can choose a different job if he is so pleased. A slave, on the other hand, is subordinate to others, to his master, but by compulsion, by force of law, by ownership, he is not his own. He is never not his own. He is always his masters at all times and everywhere. And only, and, and can only be released from that by his master. And this is how Paul views himself and Timothy in their relationship to Jesus and the mission that they're on together for Jesus Christ, that they are simply his slaves and servants where did paul get that understanding of himself is it a function of his low self-esteem this understanding of leadership and of christian identity was was taught to the apostles by jesus himself who said whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave the last shall be first, and the first last. He says in Luke 14, Jesus, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus called his apostles, his disciples, slaves. He, he taught them to think of their relationship in many ways but in this way too as slave and master Jesus in John 13 said truly truly I say to you a slave is not greater than his master if they hate you they're going to if they hated me they're going to hate you also he taught them to think of this way and that attitude was exemplified modeled for them by the Lord Jesus himself as he came into this world to perform God's will he said, I've come down from heaven in John 6, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in Matthew 20, he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If there's a ladder of greatness or significance for to be climbed in the church, it is a ladder we climb down. And the lower we get, the greater we become because we exemplify the Lord Jesus Christ's own attitude and purpose and approach to people. We'll never get as low as him, but it is our privilege to climb lower in our esteem of ourselves day by day. And as we do, we come greater in the kingdom of heaven because we reflect Jesus more and it glorifies him for us to be conformed in his image and to exemplify him in our lives. As we die to ourselves, we live to God. As As we become more and more aware and open about our weakness, the Lord Jesus' power is magnified in our life. This great theme of Jesus and his humility and our emulating him, Paul is going to open up in this letter powerfully and most beautifully in chapter two. But this is how Paul sees himself in Timothy right from the beginning and announces who he is. Paul and Timothy bond servants or slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. These men who sit atop the pinnacle of Christian leadership in their day. Doing the most advanced work in many respects with the greatest mind and insight into the mystery of the gospel. Planting lots of churches everywhere. Considers himself a servant of all and a slave of Jesus Christ. Doing only his master's will. That's his entire ambition And that's an example for us. How do you view yourself in relation to Jesus Christ and the mission of Jesus in this world? Is God lucky to have you? Is he obliged to make you happy? Is he your servant? Or are you privileged to serve him and be counted his slave? It's not dehumanizing or belittling or oppressive to be the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true freedom because we were made to serve the Lord and there is no greater joy and fulfillment and satisfaction than fulfilling the purpose of our existence. Doing what we're made to do. And Jesus is not a bad master. <laughs> I felt stupid saying it that way. He is a good master. It's a privilege to serve him, not a drudgery. He leads his slaves to victory and gives them gifts and the spoils of war and triumph. He says this in Ephesians 4, 8. And Jesus says that the yoke of his service is easy and his burden light. Is your view of yourself as a Christian As a member of the church, consistent with Paul's teaching here in this opening, do you accept that you're a saint before God, humbly realizing that's a gift of God's grace and a testament to his grace and a high calling that he has blessed you with in your life? Praise his name. When it comes to your view of your gifts and your role and your service, do you have the humility of the Apostle Paul who sees that the higher he climbs, the greater his responsibility, and he lives only to serve the Lord Jesus and to fulfill his aims, and he lives and he serves at his pleasure. He's not his own. It's not his kingdom he's building. It all redounds to the glory of the Lord. May Paul be... He considers himself... Nothing. And whatever things that accrue to his glory, he counts them as dung and rubbish. So that he may gain and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that's most refreshing to us as pastors in ministry are people who come to faith later in life. Because it's like they've already tasted of life outside of Christ fully They've been looking for satisfaction, fulfillment, and all the things. Haven't found it. And then suddenly the Lord shines on them. And you know what that produces in them? And what's so just refreshing to us as teachers and pastors is everything is now negotiable. Just tell me what the Lord says. That's what I want to do. I didn't know he said that. That's what I'm going to do. Oh, I forgot that he said that. Thanks for reminding me. I'm going to start doing that again. This is the spirit of people who know what's out there and how fulfilling or not fulfilling it is. And have come to know the Lord Jesus and the goodness of his commands and of his will. And they want to follow him and please him, and to enjoy him. So these are our, these are two fundamental identities which are our in, ours in Jesus Christ. Saints and slaves. We are now today his saints and slaves if we've tasted of his kindness and have come to believe. These are our undeserved privileges and honors which he has bestowed upon us as he unites us to his son. They are ours to practice and to enjoy more and more as children of God who live under the privilege and knowledge of God's pleasure and acceptance, learning to grow into what we are, what he has made us to be more and more, earning to enjoy more and live out more of what he has called us to be in Christ. And that's what much of Philippians is about. It's about working out and advancing in these identities. That's what it's about. And the joy that comes from it, which we see evidenced in Paul, who's suffered much and lived much, but has tasted much as a result of of his faith, the kindness of the Lord and has grown much. Do you want to grow? This is the recipe. Growth comes from this soil, from the the joint soils of sainthood and slavery. Humility, joyful acceptance of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And where we come to the point where we, acknowledging his goodness in the gospel, say, I'm here to do whatever. I'll go, send me. Not that I'm anything, but if you'll use me, I'll, if you'll have me, I will go. Let's look just briefly at how Paul ends this opening. He wishes these saints more of what God has already shown to them and what they have already tasted of and experienced. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wishes them more of the good things they've already tasted of to become made saints. And that's how we grow in Christ, is to keep coming back to these gospel foundations out of which we grow and advance in Christian living. Not by trying to prove something to God. That's impossible. But by abounding in the knowledge of our Father's goodness and of the mercies of the gospel. Yeah, we have work to do. There's muscle and sweat, blood and tears in the Christian life. If you've lived it long, you know. And Paul's going to call us to that work in the course of this letter. But it all flows and advances from one source, which is God's work. Union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes from God. Flows from his grace at work in our lives. And may we come to know it and taste it more and more in the coming days. It's hot in here. I see you all being sleepy. So we're done. We're going to go now to the Lord's Supper.